This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm interviewing Philip Margolin, the author of Worthy Brown's Daughter, a novel set in what was then the very new state of Oregon in 1860. This book, based on a true story, represents something of a departure for Philip Margolin, a best-selling author of contemporary legal thrillers. We'll find out more about him and his... Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm interviewing Philip Margolin, the author of Worthy Brown's Daughter, a novel set in what was then the very new state of Oregon in 1860. This book, based on a true story, represents something of a departure for Philip Margolin, a best-selling author of contemporary legal thrillers. We'll find out more about him and his experiences as a criminal defense lawyer and, at one time, Peace Corps volunteer during the interview. For the moment, here is the opening of Worthy Brown's Daughter, his first historical novel. The river was insane. It boiled and surged between its banks, panicking the horses, terrifying the women and children, and forcing the men to hide their fear, which was considerable. The wagon master had ordered a halt for the night so the wagon beds could be caulked to make them watertight. As soon as the sun rose, several men tied ropes around their waists and swam the river to anchor a cable that would guide the wagons across to the far shore. The wagon master, who had taken many travelers along the Oregon Trail and knew a thing or two about fording rivers, guaranteed everyone in the party that the crossing would be perfectly safe. By the time Matthew Penny was ready, Rachel Penny was not so sure. She'd seen the river hurl huge logs about as if they were matchsticks, and none of the wagons had made it to the other side easily. I'm afraid, Rachel told her husband moments before Matthew drove their wagon into the swirling waters. Don't be. I'll make it, and I'll be waiting for you on the other side. It can't be safe to cross now, she whispered, not wanting their friends, Paul and Mary McCormick, to know how frightened she was. Matthew grasped his wife's hand and held it firmly. We're going to be okay. Be strong. Mary needs you. Rachel was riding in the back of the McCormick wagon to comfort Mary, who was pregnant and ill. She wiped a tear from her cheek and threw her arms around Matthew's neck. Over his shoulder, she could see dusty plains stretching out forever beneath a slate-gray sky filled with turbulent, merciless clouds. The landscape terrified her. The last thing she said was, I love you. Matthew held his wife a moment more before disengaging and taking his place on their wagon. See you on the other side, he told her with fake cheer. Then he snapped the reins and the oxen walked reluctantly into the river. As one might expect from fiction, things go downhill for Matthew from here. To find out what happens, please join me in welcoming Philip Margolin. Hi, Phil. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. 
Thanks for asking me to come on. You have such an interesting history. Uh, you spent a couple of years in Liberia, uh, which is now in the news pretty much every day, and uh, then many more working as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, you've also described yourself as a self-taught writer. So tell us what made you decide to write fiction and how you broke through the barriers and into publishing. <laughs> well, I, I, it's probably a little bit different from most people you've interviewed. Um when I was in the seventh grade, uh, as a result of an overdose of Perry Mason novels, I decided that uh, the only career I was interested in was uh, being a criminal defense lawyer and doing murder cases. Um, and I never, ever um, thought about being a writer. I know I've heard a lot of writers, and they say, you know, in the first grade, my teacher told me I had done really well on a, you know, some assignment, and from that point on, I want to be a writer. Uh, but I've I've always read several books a week, and I started doing that in elementary school, and I was just in awe of writers. I mean, just I just assumed that I could never ever uh, do what they did, so that was never on my horizon. And the way I got into it was really weird. Um, I, I was in, uh, I went to college, graduated, uh, from American University in, in 65 and spent two years in the Peace Corps in Liberia and came back to NYU Law School and I worked my way through law school, uh, the last two years teaching junior high in the South Bronx. So, uh, I was, you know, with the full-time, um, teaching a job and then full-time law school at night. I just had time to eat and breathe, and that was about it. And then something really neat happened. Um, in I had to, to get through in three years. I went summers, and my last summer, uh, I already had a job waiting in Oregon. So all I had to do was get Ds in my classes. Uh, so I wasn't going to class that much. And my wife graduated from college, and she had a job. So I didn't have to work that summer. And I had all this free time, and I didn't know what to do with myself because usually I worked during the summers. And I thought I would use the summertime to solve what was, for me, one of life's great mysteries, and that is how do these guys fill up 400 pages with words? And I just I just couldn't imagine how you could write a big book. So my plan for the summer was to try to write um, a novel based on my Peace Corps experiences, but I wasn't writing to get published. I didn't know how to get published. I had one writing course in college, and I got a C-plus in that, and uh, I had never taken any other writing class. I didn't know anything about publishers or agents. I never met anyone who wrote a book. So the reason I was doing it was just to see, could I write more than 25 pages about something? And that that was really the extent of my interest. And it took me about two years, and uh, I wrote a book that was 187 pages long, and the book wasn't very good. I mean, I was objective enough to realize it was, you know, wasn't a good novel, but I loved the writing. It was really fun to create this three-dimensional world where everything works out exactly the way you want it to, unlike real life. So... I started writing as a hobby, and I wrote a really horrendous mystery. But again, I didn't try to get published or anything. I was just really writing for me. And then uh, in the mid-1970s, I was in my 30s at my own law practice by that time, and um, every once in a while I would write 
a short story and send it in to a magazine. And they were all rejected. But then I finally got one that was accepted by Mike Shea Mystery Magazine. And that was the first time I, you know, somebody actually said that I could write publishable fiction. They actually paid me $65, which was like some of the best money I've ever earned in my life. <laughs> and uh, I got really excited and I got some self-confidence because I didn't have any confidence in my ability to write publishable fiction. But then all of a sudden the national magazine was paying me money for something I'd written. So, um, do you want to hear my weird story, how I actually got published? Absolutely. Okay. So this is really, if you're a writer, turn off the radio or whatever you're listening to or the computer, because you're just going to get mad at me. Um, I decided that I would try to write a novel, uh, that would fictionalize a very famous Oregon murder case. And I'd been thinking about this. I'd learned about the case when I was at the Oregon Court of Appeals clerking for the chief judge. So I started writing, and I had five chapters written uh, and an outline done. But like I told you, I, I'd never met anyone who wrote a book. I had no writing classes. I had no idea whether what I was doing was any good. And out of the blue, I got a call from Marty Bauer. And he was someone I'd been very friendly with uh, my first year in law school. And then we'd both gone nights and and we had a couple of classes together so we stayed friendly but my third year we had no class together and then I moved to Oregon and he stayed in New York so I didn't know what he was doing it's been like four or five years since I'd seen him and he called up and said he and his wife wanted to come to Oregon uh, for a vacation and wanted to know if we could get together and I said sure you know you can stay at the house and I'll take some time off and show you around so um uh, I picked him up at the airport and I asked him what he was, um, you know, what, what job he had, what he was doing. And it turns out he was one of three lawyers for international creative management, which is one of the largest, uh, literary agencies in the world. And I told him that, you know, about the fact that I was writing this book, but I had no idea whether it was worthwhile because I, you know, didn't have any MFA or anything like that. And I asked him if he would take the book, the chapters, to someone back to New York and show them to someone in the agency and just say, you know, have them write me or call me up and say, hey, this is fabulous, keep going, or it's really awful, stop. And um, Marty took the five chapters back and without telling me, sold the book. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. It's a a wonderful story, actually. We're all very happy for you. Well, I would, I would have been horrified because they were just like, it wasn't even a, it was sort of like a first draft of those chapters. And, uh, I, you know, if he'd asked me, do you want me to try to sell it? I would have told him, no, no, you know, it's, I, I'm just still working on them. But he liked the chapters and I got a book contract out of it and then I had to write the book. But that was, uh, that's how I broke into publishing. That's great. And you've gone on from there. This is uh, your 17th book, I think. Did I get that right? Uh, Worthy Brown, I, I lose track. Worthy Brown's 17. I did one with my daughter. That would be 18. Woman with a Gun's coming out in December. That's 19, and I'm working on number 20 right now. Wow. And most of them are contemporary legal thrillers. Is that right? Yeah. There's a, there's all a, mur- a lawyer and a murder, and they all take place in the present. 
So this is a, this is actually one of the most impressive parts of me for me in your book. Um, my husband likes to joke that he got the lowest uh, LSAT scores ever recorded, and, <laughs> and I didn't even take the exams. <laughs> The idea that any, I'm, you know, I'm aware of the law, but the idea that anybody can actually understand it, let alone write about it in a coherent and fascinating way is just impressive to me. Well, I did, you know, I never did that well uh, in school and I never did that well on my LSATs either. And I think I, 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 I was, this is like for those people who life isn't going that well, this is, uh, this is some, you know, keep going. I, I didn't get in, I was a, a terrible student, um, I was in all the really bad classes, you know, with all the gang members and stuff uh, through the ninth grade. Didn't get into any college I applied to the first time. Uh, didn't get into any law school I applied to the first time. And then uh, I think it was the Peace Corps because uh, when I reapplied from Africa, I, I got into three of the top law schools in the United States. And I think they must have thought I was African or something. And it's coming from some small tribe in the middle of Liberia because that's the only explanation I can figure for how I got into NYU and Georgetown and Northwestern. But uh, uh, I've always sort of joked that I think I have the lowest combined LSATs and GPA of anyone who went to NYU in the last 50 years. So <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I would I would actually bet money on that. It makes for a good story. And it says that you were owed one. So the fact that you sold your first book that way, it's just like the universe paying, paying you back. <laughs> so uh, what made you decide then to turn to historical fiction for this book? Well, you know, again, I had this weird writing career. Um, I published my first book, Heartstone. That was the one that was inspired by the Oregon murder case in 78. And then I wrote another uh, novel called The Last Innocent Man that was published by uh, Little Brown in 81. And then I stopped for 12 years. And the reason I stopped was, you know, I really wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. I, you know, I was very, that's the only thing really, I, I, the writing was fun, but I, I did look at it as a career. I wasn't making very much money back then with it anyway. But the same year Hearthstone came out, I argued at the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it was like 34. And also my daughter was born, which is a pretty cool trifecta. And then in between the two books, I started doing these big murder cases and major appeals, all the stuff I wanted to do since I was a kid. So I put the writing on the back burner, and I really I, my third book didn't come out till 93. That was my first bestseller, Gone But Not Forgotten. So in between that time, I was not really thinking about writing, and somehow I came across uh, the case of Holmes versus Ford. And it's an 1853 case from the Oregon Territory. I can't remember where I read it, maybe in the Oregon Historical Society Journal or Oregon Bar Journal someplace, and it's a very, very sad story. It's the only Oregon case dealing with slavery, and most people, when they think of slavery, they think of Alabama and Mississippi, but uh, actually we had roughly 40 to 50 slaves in the Oregon Territory in the 1840s and 50s. A lot of them brought from uh, the slave state of Missouri. And this case was just heartbreaking. Um, Colonel Nathaniel Ford was a very wealthy uh, and powerful man in Missouri. He owned a lot of slaves and a lot of uh, uh, property. And then uh, the economy tanked, 
And so he did what people did in those days. He he told he decided to move to the Oregon Territory because you get a free square mile of land. Um, and you know that's what if you failed in the in you know the early days of America, if you fail one place, you just picked up one someplace else. And he uh, he had to, to sell most of his property and his slaves, but he had a family that he owned called the Holmeses. Uh, Robin and Polly were the parents, and, and then there were a number of children. And he uh, he told them that if they would come to uh, Oregon on a wagon train with him and help him set up his farm, he'd free them. And uh, Oregon was was did not have slavery. It wasn't supposed to have slaves, but. Uh, it was so big, and there were a lot of people from Missouri. No one really knew whether Oregon was going to go into the Union slave or free. So anyway, the Holmeses, rather than be sold, they went along and uh, helped him set up his farm. And then he reneged in part on his promise. He freed the parents, Robin and Polly, but he told them that uh, he had closed and fed their children when they were younger, and they got no benefit out of them because they were too little to work. So now he's going to keep the children and have them work off what he invested. And uh, the problems that Robin and Polly had was that they were uh, slaves, uh, had been slaves, and it was illegal to educate slaves. So they were illiterate and uneducated. And they had to find a white lawyer to help them sue to get their children back. And uh, they eventually did find Ruben Boyce, who went on to become a Supreme Court justice in Oregon when it became a state, but we don't know how they met or why he took up their case. Um, there's no record of that. But eventually, in 1853, they did win their case. Uh, unfortunately, though, one of the children had died while, they was in, while he was in uh, Ford's custody. And uh, as, a, as a writer and as a person... Uh, what really moved me about this was, you know, I have two kids, and I was thinking oh, how horrible it would be if someone stole my children. They were in plain view. Everyone knew where they were, and I just couldn't get them back because of the color of my skin. And so I thought this is just, I was really moved by this, and I thought this would, I, I want to write a novel based on, inspired by this case. So that was the genesis of the the idea for writing Worthy Brown's Daughter. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's really every parent's worst nightmare, especially since these were former slaves who could imagine very easily what their children would be going through while they... So it wasn't just that they had been kidnapped, but they had been, in effect, kidnapped into this this, this horrible situation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's what really, you know, moved me about the case and, and uh, you know, the struggle to get your children back. So in your book, the equivalent of Reuben Boyce is a young man named Matthew Perry. Uh, sorry, Penny. Matthew Penny. Um, please uh, let's tell us something about him as a character. Yeah, well, in, in what I did was, uh, you know, of course, this is it's fiction. It's not a, a nonfiction um, book. So uh, I moved things around and I changed uh, the date from the 1840s and 50s. 1860 in Portland, and that was the second year of Portland statehood, and it was also the year that Abraham Lincoln ran for president of the United States, and slavery was the burning issue in that election. So I thought it would be more dramatic to do that. And then I, I cut 
uh, I felt a family might be too unwieldy to deal with in the novel. So um, I cut it down to Worthy Brown is the father who's the freed slave. And his daughter, Roxanne, who's 15 years old, is kept by Caleb Barber. Uh, and he's he's the, the bad guy. He's the one who brought um, Worthy and, uh, and Roxanne from Georgia. I changed it from Missouri to Georgia. Um, and so Worthy is, is freed, um, but, but, uh, Barber insists on keeping, uh, Roxanne, uh, and there's some sexual undertones here too, cause, uh, she's the only woman in his house and he's, he's a pretty disgusting person, <laughs> Caleb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Worthy, who is uneducated and illiterate, has to find a white attorney to help him uh, sue Barber to get his uh, daughter back. And Matthew Penny is the white lawyer who who agrees to assist him. And and Matthews, um, he was a he's an attorney was an attorney in Ohio, uh, and he he's married to Rachel, who he's madly in love with. Um, and he convinces her to come to Oregon, even though her family's in Ohio, all they have friends in Ohio. But he he gets this wanderlust he, and this desire to move west, which you know many people did at that time. And he convinces Rachel that if she moves there, it's going to be an Eden like the original Garden of Eden, and everything will be fantastic. But uh, Rachel dies crossing a river on the Oregon Trail. So when Matthew, who's in his late 20s, gets to Oregon, uh, he's extremely depressed. He's grieving over the loss of Sony Loves Dearly. And his law practice doesn't go very well. Uh, There's a lot of money to be made in in Portland in those days. It was a booming port city. um, And, you know, things are just bustling. There weren't that many lawyers, but... Matthew's practice is is bogged down. He's he's representing when he can't get clients, poor farmers who are as likely to trade, you know, have food for legal services and, and small businessmen and so his practice isn't going very well. He's very depressed. Uh but he he realizes one incredible injustice uh uh Worthy is suffering, and, and I'm not going to give this away. There's also a plot reason why he agrees to to be uh, Worthy's lawyer, and that's one of the surprises in the book. So um, Matthew is um, the underdog because Caleb is, has since moving to Oregon, has become the attorney of the wealthiest uh, businessman in the state, and has become a pretty powerful man himself. And so he's a real underdog suing in a, a state where uh, there's a lot of pro-slavery sentiment. And, uh, and But he's he wants to do what's right, and he's very m- moved by Worthy's story, and that's really why he takes up the case. Yeah, um, just from a fictional perspective, um, why, why did you decide to make um, your lawyer like Matthew and... Uh, Making him a young widow and and things like that. Before we get back into the story, and I, I we won't go into the parts that you don't want to cover. 
Well, no, I mean, part of it was, you know, I lost my wife in 1970, uh, pardon me, about seven years ago and in, and, um, in 2007. And, you know, I'm still, you know, um, still not over it. And, you know, I, I just, it was, uh, an opportunity for me really to just put into a character in the book, some of the feelings that I've had, um, I just thought it would make him also a more interesting and sympathetic individual. So that's why I decided to make him, you know, he's an underdog. You know, he's he's not powerful. He's fighting, you know, an uphill battle against someone who is, um, you know, one of the more powerful attorneys in the entire state uh, in a legal system that's not sympathetic to blacks the entire Territory or state at, at that time was pretty hostile to blacks. So I thought I'd just make him, you know, if I had made him a super lawyer who's, you know, one of the most powerful lawyers, I don't think it would have been as dramatic as, uh, as having him be the underdog, uh, having to, you know, fight against the, the entrenched powers. No, that's definitely true. And sympathy is on your wife. I hadn't realized that there was a personal component to it when I asked the question. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I agree. It does make him more sympathetic that he is sort of um, fighting the establishment. And I have to say, uh, one of the things that particularly surprised me, and, and you mentioned this earlier, but still I think it's worth underlining, is that I didn't realize that there was so much racism in Oregon at that time. It's It's not completely surprising in the sense that it was the period, but I didn't, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a terrible kind of prejudice, actually. I mean, I, I just didn't think there were that many people, black people in Oregon, never mind, you know, an entrenched um, dislike against them. Oregon has this rather liberal reputation these days. Yeah, I sort of get a kick out of that because, um, you know, if I mention Oregon nowadays, everyone immediately says, "Oh yeah, blue state." Everyone sits around drinking lattes, and we just passed the today the uh, we legalized marijuana. So, you know, we have this image of being this really liberal state, but uh, we also have, can proudly proclaim that we're the only state in the union that had an exclusion clause in our. <laughs> in our constitution, which excluded blacks. Free blacks were not allowed to live in Oregon. And ever since the territory was formed, there were uh, uh, exclusion laws that were passed by the legislature. <clears throat> this is when we were a territory back in the 1840s. Um, some of these, would they come in, they'd be voted out, and then they'd come in again. And then uh, when the constitution was passed, uh, part of the Constitution was said, and we were, again, we were the only state in the Union said no freed Negro uh, who had not been living in Oregon when the Constitution was passed was allowed to live there, own property, bring lawsuits, etc. Uh, they also had lash laws, um, which uh, said that if a, if a Negro was living in Oregon and he didn't leave, that he could be beaten, he could be lashed uh, to, until he left, and. Uh, Again, just counteracting our our image as a super liberal state, uh, you know. So you're saying, well, yeah, that was back then, but you know, we're the, the Civil War, et cetera. Well, that that exclusion law was not repealed until 1927. So. Oh, goodness! <laughs> and the Ku Klux Klan was very active in the early uh, in 1900s in Oregon. So 
we're pretty liberal now, but uh, but the history of the state is with regards to, to uh, black people is pretty pretty bad. Well, I'm glad that you brought that out in this book. I mean, it, it is a very interesting take on a. Um, I mean, that's one of the benefits of historical fiction is that you can find out all these things that that you don't suspect even existed. Um, so, in fact, when we when we first encounter Matthew, he's at the river where he loses Rachel, and then we we meet him in the town of Phoenix, which I assume is also in Oregon. Um, well, I made that. I'll tell you, there is a Phoenix, Oregon. <laughs> I've been getting some emails about this, but I made that's a made up town. Okay, uh, I just like the sound of it, and since it's my book, I can do any damn thing I want to. So, uh, I called it Phoenix, but there isn't a town of Phoenix like the one I described. The the Phoenix there is a very small town of Phoenix, Oregon, but uh, it's not the one I made up is a is a is a fictional town. So go ahead. Okay. Well I mean it's the perfect title, isn't it? Because Matthew is sort of coming back to life in a sense at this moment. Um and uh, he's he's sleeping off his grief in a barn basically and and someone this young boy comes and summons him to interrupt a lynching in progress and despite what we've just said about um uh, racism in oregon this is actually a, uh, a, a lynching in progress of a white man who's being accused of theft um and uh, here we first start to see matthew as an underdog i guess basically he's i mean he's really got the the um the cards stacked against him at this moment. Um, and this is where we also see some of the, the other um, important characters from the novel who are being brought in. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this incident since it's so early in the book. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to do with that incident is, you know, what, what fascinated me, I had no history courses. I think I may have had a history course. I don't even remember what it was about. But one of the problems I had or or when I started working on this book was I had no idea what it was like to live in 1860 in the West. Uh, you know, I didn't, you know, like I knew nothing like, where did you get water from? Like, did you have a, you know, did you go to your refrigerator and get a plastic bottle out of your refrigerator? Did they have faucets? I mean, I literally knew nothing. So I had to do tons of research. And, and, and the other thing was, since my main character is a lawyer, I had to learn what it was like to practice law back then. And I was amazed to find out that the practice of law in the 1850s and 60s, you, you, if you were a lawyer, you not only had to know the law, but you had to know how to shoot people. Uh, I mean, this was the wild, wild west where many times the the uh, uh, legal dispute was settled with, with, with knives or guns. And uh, the judges had to be very, very tough because they rode circuit. And we have these circuit courts that people know, know that term. But where it came from was that the four judges of the Oregon Supreme Court, justices, they were appellate judges part of the time, but the rest of the time they actually got on a horse and rode in a circuit in a, from town to town, and they were trial judges who heard cases, and there were no courtrooms. So there's some some dispute over this, whether there were actually some courtrooms in Oregon, but my understanding is that uh, that most that there weren't. Uh, I know that they held court in Portland in the loft of the Coleman Barrel Company. They they clear out the loft, and then... Uh, uh, but 
uh, I wanted to use this scene to sh- to show how uh, wild and woolly the 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 West was, and Jedediah Tyler, um, who's one of the Supreme Court justices and a major figure in the book, uh, ends up arriving in the nick of time to save this guy from being lynched, but he does it by using his gun to knock out the guy that's got the noose. Uh, no, no, you know, writs or uh, filing of court papers. He just, uh, when the guy says he's not going to stop the lynching, Tyler, who's who's a very, who's a huge guy, very thick, I describe him as being sort of someone you might mistake for uh, a black bear from a distance smashes his gun butt into this guy's skull and knocks him unconscious. And so I and and uh, I just want to you know use the scene and then there's a trial a couple of trials after to show um, that the way we practice law today and the way law was practiced back in the 1860s was really different. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I'm a historian, but even so, when I'm researching my novels, one of the problems is that there's so little information in many cases that a novelist needs to know, you know, how people, I mean, you can see how people dressed and how people, what houses look like and things like that. But, you know, the nitty gritty details of daily life are, are not often very well covered in historical sources. What did you use to, to research this well, novel? Yeah, I was really lucky. Uh, my law, I, I was, my law office was only about five or six blocks from the Oregon Historical Society, which has a fabulous library. And so, um, you know, again, I wasn't writing full time. I was just, you know, I was just really, I wasn't even writing part time. I was just doing this research. It took me about six years be- of researching before I even started writing the book. But I would just wander up there when I had a free afternoon when I didn't have court or a, a client coming in, and I just read stuff, uh, journals of people who travel on the Oregon Trail, anything written by somebody like a lawyer or politician or anyone who lived in that time period in the West. And I found one a gold mine, which if you can find this, you should read it, even if you have, I mean, it's amazing. It's the memoir of Stephen J. Field. And he is one of the most amazing people in American history, but no one knows about him. He was the first United States Supreme Court justice from the West. Uh, Abraham Lincoln appointed him. And he's the only U.S. Supreme Court justice who was arrested for murder while he was sitting on the bench. And he practiced law in Marysville, California in the 1840s and 50s, or probably 1850s. And, and uh, uh, his life is reasonable. It's like the old Maverick TV show. He was involved in duels with Bowie knives and shootouts and all sorts of insane stuff. But uh, in his memoir, he also does describe his law office. Uh, he describes some of his cases and how they were tried. So I got this astonishing amount of material out of um, Fields' um, memoirs. Uh, but it was basically just, you know, rummaging through the Oregon Historical Society's uh, collections and then also the Multnomah County uh, uh, Library, which is, I think, the second busiest in the United States after the New York Public Library. We have a fabulous, fabulous library in, in Portland. In, and it's uh, you know just gorgeous. So between the, the the two libraries, I was able to get a lot of the material I needed. Then I bought books. I, 
you know, I'd rummage through uh, uh, bookstore, Powell's Books is the, uh, our great bookstore that we have in Portland. I go down there and just go and look for books that, you know, might bear on the, on what I was, was writing about. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, it really comes across well in the novel. It's, um, it's, it feels very natural. You know, one of the, the problems with historical fiction is when people get so caught up in their research that they can't resist putting it into the book. Um, but yours is not like that. It's just very natural part of the story. You know, I appreciate that comment because what I was really scared about <laughs> was whether I could could portray this uh, time period realistically. I mean, I was very nervous about it. I mean, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years, so I, in most of my books I have a murder trial and, you know, courtroom scenes and that I don't even think twice about writing those because I did that. You know, I did about 30 homicide cases and arguing the U.S. Supreme Court, so writing that stuff, contemporary stuff, is is a snap. I don't even have to do research, but I was terrified about whether I could write realistically about 1860. And uh, actually I actually had it vetted by a former uh, uh, executive director of the Oregon Historical Society. And I breathed a sigh of relief when he said, you know, this is this is pretty good. And then um, I've been thrilled to see that a lot of the reviews said that I got, you know, they felt like they were in 1860 because that was – you know, that was just something I just wasn't sure I could do pull it off. But, um, you know, I've, I've gotten pretty good feedback that I actually was able to recreate the the time period realistically. So now I'm, you know, now I feel okay. Yeah, no, it did. You really did a good job. Um, so let's go back to the story. Um, in that initial scene with the lynching, um, there are some characters that you've already mentioned, Caleb Barber, uh, who is the lawyer for Benjamin Gillette, who is the, the local honcho he's running railroads and things like that and and you mentioned Jedediah Tyler but the other character who shows up in early on is Sharon Hill tell us something about Sharon Hill yeah Sharon now actually I should tell you that Sharon Hill and this the uh, a lot of the uh, st- stuff about the, the marriage contract um, came from a case that Stephen that field was involved in was the the case where he was arrested for murder so I, again, I get this amazing amount of information uh, on this very bizarre case from the memoirs. But Sharon Hill is a really um, she's evil, but I try to make her a certain uh, a certain amount of sympathy for her. Um, she's she's beautiful and highly intelligent, but she um, has been a prostitute in in San Francisco. Who escaped from her pimp by by poisoning him to death, and uh, she's come to she, she's on the run and she's come to Oregon um, to try to escape from San Francisco life and and uh, uh, she becomes Gillette's mistress, but um, she's also involved in a plot to get his fortune. And again, I don't want to tell too much about what happens in the book, but. Um, uh, for me, it was it was sort of she was interesting. I wanted to make her um, an evil person, but I also wanted the reader to understand why she, you know, what she's put up, what her life was like be- that drove her to become the type of person she is. So she has plays a pivotal role in 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 one of the uh, in the other major plot 
in in the uh, book, which is this attempt by her to uh, to steal uh, the fortune of Benjamin Gillette, who is the the wealthiest, most powerful businessman in the state. Um, she's actually, I mean, by the end, she's somewhat sympathetic. Even, I mean, you can't like her exactly because, as you say, she is she's a genuine gold digger and. In the you know traditional sense of that term, but on the other hand, I mean, she really has had a rough life, so she's. It is easy to understand, maybe not. I mean, she obviously has other choices that she could have made, but nonetheless, you know, you do feel kind of sorry for her, having gone through so much before she gets to Oregon. Good. I'm glad you feel that way because it means I succeeded. (laughs) Right. So, um, so Matthew gets through this. Uh, there's actually two cases on that first day. I mean, the first is is he's trying to stop the lynching, which he doesn't succeed at, but uh, Jedediah Taylor comes in. Tyler comes in and stops it. Um, and then there's a second case in that day where he's trying. He's actually brought face to face with Kayla Barber and Ben Gillette, who are um, trying to get some land for one of their projects. And from there, he goes on to Portland. Now, was he always on his way to Portland from the time he left Ohio? Was he always what? Was he always heading for Portland? Oh, yeah. Uh, they, You know, that's the Oregon Trail um, uh, ended up in the Dalles uh, on the Columbia River and then, and then eventually funneled into Oregon City originally. But but then uh, once, because uh, Oregon City was the big the big city initially uh, in 1840. That's where the Columbia River, uh, which is pr- the most dangerous part of the trip, uh, was was going down that river. Um, but then eventually, when Portland was founded, it's it's a, where the Columbia and Willamette Rivers meet, and it became a big port city. So. That's where a lawyer would head if they wanted to be successful. That's where all the commerce was, and um, so yeah, he, his intention initially is to head for for uh, Portland and, and try to establish a law practice. Okay, so he, he gets there, and this is where the Worthy Brown story really comes into its own. Um, I don't know how. I mean, you've told us something about the story, the historical background of the incident on which it's based and and Worthy and Roxanne. So I don't know how far you want to go into it, but this maybe you could set it up for us a little bit as as it at the at the early part when he's in Portland. Yes, and I again I my this one of the things I love about this book, um you know, most of my my other books I really I mean I have a I do have le- moral and ethical dilemmas in my contemporary legal thrillers. They're all Thrillers and mysteries is usually a surprise, and it's always a surprise, and you don't know who the killer is, most of them. And But uh, I wanted to try to do something different with Worthy Brown. I wanted to write something that was on a whole, uh, several different levels. So so you can read the book as a legal thriller. There's actually a murder case with a surprise ending at the end of the book, but you can also read it as a historical novel. I, like I've explained before, I really tried very hard to paint a picture of the 1860s. Um, you can read it as a Western, but you can also read it as a literary novel. And so I was trying to do all these different things. Um, and the subject of slavery and owning a human being and the effect on Roxanne, who's 15, but has been 
told her whole life that she's subhuman, that she's not even a real person. And I tried to describe how she overcomes that and becomes a strong woman by the end of the book. Um, but one of the things I don't want to do, because there are a lot of, even though it's a literary novel, there are a lot of twists, turns, and surprises in the book. And so I'm very nervous about ever giving away any of the twists, because I think it sort of ruins it for the reader. Um, but but uh, I think, I guess the best thing I could say is that, that um, Matthew agrees to represent Worthy for some reasons that I don't want to give away because it would spoil a twist. Uh, and and they do get into court, but then things take a very bizarre turn, and the rest of the book uh, goes off in a direction you might not anticipate. Um, so that's again, that's I don't want to give away <laughs> too much of the plot. Okay, no, let's let's go at it from a different angle then, um, because I'm interested about the fact that you are a lawyer, you're a criminal defense lawyer. And independently of what actually happens during the trial, I was wondering, what are the legal implications of Worthy Brown uh, finding a white lawyer to get his child back? In other words, what what precedents are set as a result of independently well, of whether he succeeds? It, yeah, what I don't is, think they I don't think any. The, the precedent in the real world, in, in the real case, what this, uh, what was established by Holmes versus Ford. And let me just give a plug for another book. If, if you're interested in the real story of Holmes versus Ford, Greg Noakes, um, uh, wrote a, a, a really good book uh, that was published by the Oregon University, uh, Oregon State University Press called Breaking Chains. And this is the weirdest coincidence. Uh, I was giving a talk in uh, at a, a bookstore in, in uh, Central Oregon. And after the book talk, I gave a, uh, you know, you do a Q&A and someone said, what's your next project? And I said, well, Worthy Brown's daughter, this fictional book inspired by the real case of Holmes v. Ford, and then Greg was in the audience, and he said, you know, I'm I'm writing a nonfiction book about Holmes v. Ford, and uh, it's going to come out this summer, and so I said, oh my gosh, I said, well, I'm coming out in January, so let's do joint appearances, which we've been doing. Um, we did about five of them, and he's actually got um, photographs of Mary Holmes, one of the children, and the... the um, uh, Ford home with the slave quarters in the back. So uh, if any of your uh, listeners are interested in finding out more about the Holmes versus Ford case, but but the implications of Holmes versus Ford was that that is the case that established that there is no slavery, could not be slavery in Oregon. And uh, the way, the way um, Robin and Polly won the case is pretty interesting. Uh, I mentioned that uh, that uh, Colonel Nathaniel Ford was a very powerful person in Missouri. Well, he became a powerful person in Oregon too. He's a legislator, and uh, you know, someone no one wanted to mess with. So, when Reuben Boyce, the white lawyer, agreed to represent Robin and Polly and sued, none of the judges wanted to hear the case because uh, they didn't want to cross this guy. Well, how did they win? Uh, Oregon was a territory back then, which meant that the President of the United States appointed the judges. And President Franklin Pierce appointed uh, George Williams, a New Yorker, uh, as the Chief Justice of the Oregon uh, Territorial Court. 
And he had never been to Oregon, didn't know anyone there. And within a week of moving to Oregon, he heard this case and wrote an opinion. And he said, you know, I've looked at the statutes in the territorial constitution and slavery is not legal here. So you got to give the kids back. So that, that case established that <clears throat> you could not have slavery in the Oregon Territory. Oh, well, that is important. <laughs> I'm glad to know that. What would you like readers to take away from Worthy Brown's Daughter? You know, I mean, it's like I think I mentioned before, I for me, the, the joy in writing this book was that it was it was different in tone and and I guess seriousness from my other books. So um I I'd love them I'd like readers to say, boy, this is a good literary novel. Um you know, and and to 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 think about what it what it was like if you were if you were black in those days, uh as uh Roxanne is and being told that you're subhuman, you're not worth you're sort of like a piece of furniture, you're not really a person. And uh, and how she grows out of that, but to think about what it would be like if you were black and living in uh, as a slave back in those days—how horrible! Uh, not just you know the fact you had to work for nothing, but what effect that has on your mind, on your you know, and then uh, you know uh, Matthew's uphill battle to get justice for his friend, but there's there's some horrible moral and ethical dilemma that Matthew gets put in in the middle of the book and again that's why I'm very nervous about talking about the plot too much because it's a it's a major twist that happens about halfway through the book that puts Matthew in a horrible situation uh, that really tests him as a human being so uh, again I'd like people to get to to feel like they they're back in 1860, you know, it's almost like science. I think historical fiction is like science fiction because you have people living in a in a land or in a place that doesn't exist nowadays. And I would love the readers to say, and and again, that's why I've been so excited about some of the reviews. Say, hey, yeah, you know, uh, this is if I was living back there, this is this is probably the way it would be, and 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 to find that interesting. I agree. Historical fiction is like science fiction in that way. You really have to create the world and make it consistent and make it, but keep it in the background so it doesn't take over everything else. So that there's still it's still story first, and then, but the, but all of this coherent world has to exist in a way that that people can really understand and relate to. Do you think you'll ever write historical fiction again? Well, you know, people have asked me if I was going to do that, and the thing for me is I get an idea, and um, and that's, and then I get really excited. So all my books start with some premise, something that I'm you know hadn't thought about that gets me really really going. I love writing. I mean, I get I'm at my office. I kept my law office, even though I'm not a lawyer anymore, but we're practicing lawyer. Uh, and I get there at 7.30 every day because I cannot wait to start writing. So if I got another idea that um, uh, for some a book that was set in a historical time period, not this, not contemporary, I'd do it. Uh, I just haven't been able to get, at this point, 
um, the idea for another historical book, but I'd love to do it. I mean, I always used to say that I really wish I could get an idea for something that wasn't a contemporary legal thriller. And I love writing the contemporary legal thriller. I mean, they're, they're just the most fun for me. But I, you know, I wanted to stretch myself. And that's what I felt I did with Worthy Brown is, you know, I had a tremendous challenge since I didn't know anything about history, no, nothing about the time period. Could I actually pull this off? Could I actually do it? So if I got an idea for another historical novel, I'd, I'd be excited to do it. I just have not run across anything that's got my motor going the way Holmes versus Ford did. Do you have a project that you're working on now? Oh, yeah. I'm always, I'm always, I have a book that's coming out on December 2nd that I'm very excited about, Woman with a Gun. Um, and I urge readers or, or anyone listening to this program uh, to to go on uh, some of the e-books, uh, like, uh, you know, the, the Barnes & Noble Nook and Amazon. They have the cover-up. Um, and I was in, I was in Georgia keynoting a writer's conference many years ago when, uh, I was eating in, in a place called Palmer, uh, Palmer's Village Cafe, uh, and the owner also owns an art gallery and decorated the cafe with the art from the gallery. And after I ate, I went to the bathroom, and over the toilet was the most amazing photograph I have ever seen in my entire life. Uh, it's a woman in, in a wedding dress um, looking out to sea. She's standing on the ocean right where the foam line comes in. She's barefoot, and she's in her wedding dress. And behind her back, she is holding what I took to be a Colt 45 revolver or one of those old Western six shooters. And I, and it's a night shot. It's black and white. It's just a beautiful photograph. And like I said, you can see the photograph because, uh, well, I'll tell you why you can see the photograph on the cover. So, so I, I said, what is going on here? Has she just killed her husband on her wedding night or is she going to commit suicide? Is she waiting? For someone to come in from the ocean, she's going to shoot. What is this? So I ran out to the cashier and I said, I, I want that photograph. I want that photograph. So I ended up buying it uh, from Leslie Jeter, who's the wonderful photographer who took it. And then I had the name of my next book, Woman with a Gun, in my cover. I didn't have a story. But in my contract with HarperCollins, I insisted that they use the the photograph on the cover. And I don't think they fought it because it's a phenomenal cover. Um, but that book's coming out December 2nd, and uh, I, I really enjoyed writing that book. Uh, and then I'm working on about 200 pages into my next one. So I've always got a book going. That's another contemporary legal thriller. It's, I've written several books. Uh, most of my books are standalones. They're, they're not series, but I do have a short series with uh, Amanda and Frank Jaffe. It's a father-daughter criminal defense team, and this is a fifth Amanda Jaffe book that I'm, I'm writing right now. Well, that's great. Uh, I will definitely go look for that cover. It sounds, the photograph sounds amazing. Um, thank you yeah, so even much. If you, even, if you hate, even if you hate Woman with a Gun, if you hate the book, you're going to love the cover. So. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Phil. Oh, no, this was great. I enjoy I love talking about writing, especially, you know, since I came to it late. So uh, I always like doing it, and I enjoy the interview. Great. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Philip Margolin, author of Worthy Brown's Daughter. You can find out more about him at www.philipmargolin.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-M-A-R-G-O-L-I-N. 
Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cpilosi.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books and historical fiction. Mm-hmm.